What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the Always Hope Podcast. This is Dr. Mari Sakasa, and truly grateful to have you joining me today. Well, all right. So maybe it's because it's COVID, or maybe because I've had several friends who have lost loved ones over the past couple years. Maybe it's just because I'm getting older. But to be honest with you, death has been on my mind. And I've been wondering, what does it take to have a peaceful death? Is it something that you earn? Is it a grace? Is it both? How does awareness of our mortality benefit our day-to-day discernments? What can the dying teach us about living a good life? So today's episode certainly is a heavy topic for sure, but I couldn't think of anybody better to have this conversation with than my friend Paul Malley, who for the past 20 years has been serving the sick and the dying. You see, Paul is the president of Aging with Dignity, which is a nonprofit dedicated to safeguarding the rights of the elderly, the disabled, mentally ill, especially in times of serious illness. In today's show, Paul beautifully shares insights and lessons learned from the field. We talk about the importance of knowing our mortality and how to organize our life around that awareness, the need to eliminate the unnecessary from our lives, how to find meaning in the day-to-day suffering, and why spending time with family is never wasted time. So even though it's a heavy topic, you know, we keep it real, we keep it light, we always keep it anchored in hope as we do all of the shows of the Always Hope Podcast. So when the show is done, please leave a comment or write a review on Apple Podcasts, although I know most of you now at this point are listening to this thing on Spotify, I can see the numbers, but still, if you are an Apple user, please know that every one of those comments or ratings helps and goes a long way for promoting the show. All right, everybody, let's get into this conversation with Paul Malley. Paul Malley, welcome to the Always Hope podcast. How are you doing today? Very good, Dr. Mario. Good to be with you. Oh, man, the the pleasure is is all mine. Thanks so much for taking time of your busy schedule with all the wonderful things you do at Aging with Dignity to, to just give me a little bit of time to have this conversation on the podcast. So for those who don't know you or don't know Aging with Dignity, just want to give you a few minutes to give you an opportunity to go ahead and introduce yourself and, and the good work that you guys do in that ministry. Sure. Well, and I'm also a uh, an Always Hope podcast fan and listener. So yeah, all a, right. There we go. It, it's a pleasure and an honor to be sitting with you today. That's awesome. Thanks, Paul. That's my, that's my first claim to fame. You know, that's, it's your last, it's your least bottom of the barrel claim to fame. There's no claim in that favor. Right <laughs> no, it's great. Great, great to chat with you. And Thanks, uh, yeah, so, so Aging with Dignity, it's a private nonprofit organization. We have offices in Tallahassee, Florida, and in Washington, D.C., and uh, our founder, Jim Tui, worked with Mother Teresa of Calcutta. Jim was Mother Teresa's legal counsel for 12 years, and he lived in some of her homes for the dying uh, in Washington, D.C., had his first experience meeting Mother Teresa at uh, her home for the dying in Calcutta. And, and he founded Aging with Dignity with the intention of putting the focus on, uh, on, on humanity on human dignity and protecting human dignity where it's most threatened, Mm. particularly for people who are facing the challenges of aging, disability, loneliness, um, or serious illness. So I've been with Aging with Dignity for a little over 20 years. And uh, and it's been great to see the impact of a, a small organization reach now more than about 40 million people through our Five Wishes program. Wow. That's amazing. So Jim Tui starts this this nonprofit specifically to work with those who are vulnerable, in a particular way, the elderly population. And so the main 
work that you do is, is this five wishes to my understanding. So explain what the five wishes is uh, for, for the audience that doesn't know. Sure. So five wishes we introduced nationally uh, just at the time that I joined Aging with Dignity straight out of college, uh, about the time that I, I first met you, Mario, <laughs> before you were Dr. Mario and you were just Mario. <laughs> I'm uh, still just Mario. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, so I, I joined Aging with Dignity just as we were launching Five Wishes nationally. And, um, and the aim with Five Wishes was to give every person, every adult, every family, a simple way to communicate what is most important to them in time of a serious illness. I think almost all of us, when we're asked about one of the most important roles that we have as a caregiver uh, and what we would want to be able to do for the, our family, our close friends, our, our parents, our grandparents, if they were sick, I think we all have this desire to care well for them and mm -hmm. to do right by them. And for many of us, we just don't know what that is what the right is, what the right thing is. It might be about medical care or just about how to be at the bedside of somebody who's very sick. So we created five wishes to put the focus on, uh, on something called advanced care planning. That's a legal, a, a legal structure of making medical decisions before a serious illness. We combine that with, uh, with more of the heart and soul issues and questions about mm. Uh, what matters most to you, who you'd like to be with you, how you want to be remembered, issues of love and forgiveness and spirituality rolled into a, really a very simple document that's intended for everybody 18 and over for a family to sit together and fill it out together with grandparents, parents, and grandchildren who are 18 and over. Uh, and, and that's what has allowed us to impact the lives of tens of millions of people all over the country People of all different faiths and traditions, it's available in 29 different languages. And, uh, and at the heart of it, it's about caring well for one another, and especially those who are most vulnerable. That's what it's about. Uh, it's remarkable. And giving people the, the opportunity to be able to state what those advanced directives will be, whether they're particular um, or, or kind of more, more narrative in terms of the spirituality aspect of it. But really, it's beautiful to think about the sense of, of empowering individuals all the way through, even to the end of their life. Um, and so I, I think, honestly, like what, what inspired me to do this interview um, was really that in my work with young people, um, whether it's young, particularly young adults, that those are the folks who tend to listen to this episode, to the show, as well as in my counseling practice. I do have middle-aged and older folks, but it seems like a lot of young adults tend to find me in counseling. It's an age where when you've graduated college and you're kind of in your mid-20s, early 30s, that you're really kind of setting up life and, and trying to figure out, okay, I've gone to college, I, I think I've picked a career, or maybe I've discerned a vocation, and maybe I've left that, or I was in a relationship and left that. And so so there's sometimes we're just graduating and, and going into a particular um, yeah, grad school and, and moving forward. You know, you're trying to, to set up your life that this question of like, what does God want? What am I supposed to do with my life? Is one that I know carries heavily in the hearts of, of, of many people as it should. If you, if you care about your life and you care about what you're supposed to do, then I think the question of what do you, what do you want to do with your life? What, what is God asking of you? Um, what, where do you feel you're responsible for are all the right questions to be asking. And so I, I thought that it'd be interesting to, to interview you with the 20 years that you have now working with the elderly population in thinking about, okay, like what are, what are lessons that have been learned from individuals 
who are setting up these advanced directives, who are setting up these, these five wishes that they have as they reflect on their life and how they want to die in peace. Like what gets somebody to that point? I mean, like, well, I know we pray in the Hail Mary, obviously now and at the hour of our death that we're asking for, for Mary's presence to be with us. And so I recognize that there's an element of prayer, of course, and spirituality that plays into this, but what allows somebody to die with peace um, is a very heavy question, but you don't just get there. You, you set up your life in a certain way that it's almost as if, I don't want to say you earn it, but maybe that's coming across too hard, but that's kind of the point that I'm getting at. It's almost kind of like I think of the way I'm thinking about this right now is like when I, when I look at like my 401k, for example, or my IRA, you know, like I've been investing in it for a little bit for a few years now. And, and it's really just a small amount that you put in every day. And all of a sudden, after a while, you're like, oh, okay, well, there's compound interest. You know, one day you look at the statement and you're like, oh, that was, that was compound interest doing its thing. You know, it just kind of, that blows up because mine's not blowing up. I can assure you mine's not blowing up, you know, but, but, but you see the little number go a little bit higher than it was before. And it's just like these, it's, it, but it's not something that I did overnight. It's, it's, it's small investments that I put along the way that then have materialized into something more. And so that's, I guess, what I'm thinking about when I, when I feel like, okay, when I look at elderly and, and I really want to kind of learn from you in terms of what, what you've heard people say that are things that we can look at now in our, for p- people in their 20s or 30s or early 40s to continue to set up their life in a way that, that they can age with dignity um, and, and age with peace um, as, as, your, uh, as your company is, is called, as your nonprofit is called. So- I mean, wherever you want to take that, Paul. <laughs> you are here exactly on the right track, and uh, and and to to re- to frame that, I would say one of the comments that we've heard, especially from younger people who use five wishes with their family, maybe they're using it with parents or grandparents, is that they've come back to us and they've said, "Doing this has changed the way I live." Wow. Wow. You know, it's not just about planning for what the end looks like, right? But when we have, when we start to have a vision of what we hope the end will look like, hmm. it really should change the way that we live each day. If we're mm-hmm. if we're living with the end of with the end in mind, mm-hmm. planning with the end in mind, and what we want that to look like. And when I say what we want that to look like, oftentimes it's focused on the, the people who we want to have around us and. And um, and thinking about our our faith and our spirituality and those types of things, right? Um, as and you know, as one example of how I remember one young person saying it changed the way that they went about their life. One of the components of five wishes when it's talking about family relationships lets a person say, "I want to uh, I want to be forgiven for the times that I might have hurt others, hmm. and I want to grant forgiveness to those who may have hurt me." And sometimes people will just check that off as a checkbox, as a a kind of a blanket statement to everyone who they love. And other times people will write somebody's name in there. And uh, and in this one instance, a younger person said to me, when I realized I wanted to let so-and-so out of the doghouse after a few years of holding a grudge against them, I realized, well, why would I want to wait until I die for them to know that? Why don't I just <laughs> tell them now and forgive yeah. them now? Uh, so I think that perspective, it does, it, when we think about talking about five wishes and planning for what we hope the end will look like, how we would experience it, and we think about our relationships with the people around us, with God, all the important things, 
um, it it does give us a different perspective and a different lens that allows us to live our life today in a better way. Yeah. So again, you're quoting Stephen Covey, of course, uh, seven habits of highly efficient, highly successful people, right? One of them, one of the seven habits is start with the end in mind. And and if we start with the ultimate end in mind, then we kind of prioritize our life underneath that and establish kind of what we're going to do, what our values are, what our behaviors are going to be, as long as we keep that, that vision in, in, in the end. Um, but sometimes it's, it's hard to think that like, I mean, it's hard to really imagine like our mortality, you know, when we're in our twenties to be sincere, uh, when we're in our thirties, it's hard to think about that because we feel like we have so much time, um, that we don't really know what that means. And sometimes that can be a little bit too abstract, which is why I think it's great that you said about, um, this young person that you spoke about that when, when you were forced to ask these questions and really reflect on what that would mean for you, it, it says, well, even if this moment doesn't happen until 60 years from now or seven years from now, or who knows, 100 years from now, depending on where medicine and technology and all that stuff is kind of heading, um, it still forces you to think, okay, well, then if, if, if I'm angry at this person now, why am I going to wait till the end to forgive them? Why not just do that now? <laughs> let's, let's just go and get this out of the way. And uh, I know that's going to be a better experience for me in my life. Um, even if I don't establish a firm relationship with them, but even but just letting them off the hook and just forgiving them um, frees my heart up in a way that allows me to be able to live a, a better life. And so, it isn't about being uh, um, macabre or or morbid uh, when we think about death, um, but it is something about about putting that in our in our sights in a way that again is not overly fearful, but that does remind us that that time is a fixed resource. You know, it's, it's not like, it's not like money that we can invest. Um, and, and we get more of time is it is what it is. We all have the same 24 hours in the day. We all have the same 60 minutes in an hour. We all have the same 60 seconds in a minute to, to work with, to operate with. None of us can, can trade time to get more time or do anything of that, that we all have the same amount that we, that we work with. And so it's, it's a limited resource. And so how do we invest that resource into the things that are that are going to set us up in a way uh, that is most meaningful. Um, so one of the things that you had mentioned here and kind of in our, in our conversation kind of leading into the show and in some of the notes that we kind of shared back and forth was this analogy of a marathon, which I think is, is beautiful. Um, I ran a marathon last year and I can honestly say that it, it, um, it it's the right analogy. I don't know how else to say it. I mean, it really, um, I've reflected on it. I, 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 I ran the marathon right before COVID started. And then I wrote these, I wrote five posts on the, the faith and marriage website that were uh, real reflective about my experience with the marathon uh, right when COVID was starting. So I think maybe two people read the posts, myself being one of the two and my wife being the other. I think that was it, you know, in terms of like these deep reflections on what the marathon had meant to me. But but, uh, but if the listener wants to go back and check them out, they're all there on faithandmarriage.org, a little plug for the, for the blog right there. But nevertheless, the, 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 for me, um, it was, there, I remember there was, there was a moment in the marathon that, that uh, was the most significant for me. And it was mile 18, somewhere thereabouts. Um, I've run 18 miles. I have another eight miles to go, which is still eight miles to go. You know, it's, this is 26.2. I remember at one point I'm running, I'm, I'm exhausted. Uh, I haven't eaten solid food in four hours. Um, I've just been drinking kind of uh, 
not Gatorade, but, but sort of, but, you know, uh, energy drinks and supplements and things like that. So there's no, no, I mean, I'm just exhausted. And I remember having this distinct thought, which was I could stop. I could stop. Nobody would care. You know, this, like this isn't bringing any sort of value in my life. Like in the sense, like finishing a marathon doesn't give me a raise. Finishing a marathon doesn't give me more children. Finishing a marathon doesn't give me a better car. I mean, none of these things, there's no material value to this experience. And so why, like, what am I doing to myself right now? And, and, and that was the, that was the, that was when the mental game really kicked in and I had, and it was really, that's when I was like, I, I think I'm just going to stop. But then I said, no, man, I've been thinking, I've been wanting to do this thing for, since I was in high school. I've been, I've dedicated the last eight months of my life to really kind of train for this thing. I said, I'm not giving up now. Let's just push through this. Let's get this thing done. And, uh, and, you know, just for the sake of it, let's do it. And so for those two miles, I was, I was kind of in my head stopped, got out of my head. And then for the last six miles, just kind of ran as, as hard as I could, which was at that point in the game, probably equivalent to a turtle. I would say, you know, maybe a turtle could have out, outpaced me in those last couple of miles because the body just didn't want to do anything anymore. Um, so, but I finished the marathon and I crossed the finish line and it was the most, um, uh, it was as meaningful as completing my doctorate in all sincerity. I mean, like I, I cried my eyes out when it was done. I had this t- tremendous sense of accomplishment. My kids were there and it was wonderful to be able to celebrate that moment with them. And, uh, and it was really just, just profound. Um, but, I, but as I've reflected on, on it since that experience of what am I doing? Why am I doing this? Like how much longer is this really going to go has been a thought that has, that has shaped and changed the ways that I, that I do a lot of the different projects that I do in my life and, and trying to stay faithful to, to certain tasks, um, that I, that I feel and have discerned are the right thing to do. Um, even if I'm not getting the fruit or the results that I, that I, that I, that I would immediately want out of them. Um, so I don't know. What are your thoughts? Wow. Well, first of all, I'm so glad that you've completed a marathon because you can bring firsthand experience to this <laughs> that I cannot, <laughs> but I can appreciate. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, so I'd say when you, and when you were training for the marathon, I imagine there, there was training involved, right? There was a lot of, training. of it. Yep. And, and when you were training, you had an idea of what you wanted the end to look like. You, you wanted to cross the finish line, make it to the 26.2 and, mm-hmm. and that changed the way you trained. Right. Yes, absolutely. And, 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 and the, the thing about the marathon is you don't, you don't run the 26.2 at any point in the training. Right. <laughs> you, 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 it's the last, it's, it's the last, it, it's the one, the one engagement with the marathon where you put all the pieces together. Right. Yep. That's exactly it. right. That's exactly yep. right. Yeah. So, so it, different trainings do different things, but the most you do is 20 or, or 22 and you only do that once or once, maybe once or twice in the training. So you leave the 26 and that, I mean, it's still six miles. I mean, that's, I mean, like, you know, you've done 20, but it's still like a 10 K that you haven't done. And, uh, and it's like, okay, well, I have to just, just trust the training, trust that I've done what I need to do. That's going to push me through to, uh, to the other side. Um, so there, and there's the parallel for all of us with yeah. life yeah. because sure we can, we can learn from the people who walked ahead of us from mm-hmm. our, our family members, our grandparents, saints who have lived their lives in heroic ways and, and and, and left a, a bread trail for us mm-hmm. so that we can follow the crumbs and kind of see the path forward. Um, but just like running the marathon, we don't know exactly how it's going to flow until we keep putting one foot in front of the other mm-hmm. and move forward and get past mile 18 and mile 20 and keep pushing to our own finish line, 
not knowing exactly how it's going to look, but knowing we want to get there. Right. And, and I think that's what, that's what makes me think of our experience at aging with dignity and, and having, having had this, this real blessing of, uh, of impacting millions of people's lives, especially as they approach that finish line mm -hmm. and of hearing their stories and of hearing their, their, their spouse or their kids or their grandkids say the way that I saw maybe my grandmother walk this, walk this path and run her own marathon. Uh, it, it gave me a different perspective and mm -hmm. it changes the way that I live today. Yeah. Um, that's the gift that we have of age, at aging with dignity of as being able to look back on those experiences and stories and, and help people pass on that legacy to their own family members and, uh, and then share it with, uh, with everybody who's listening. Amen. Amen. Awesome. Okay. Well, so let's talk about some of the, the particular points um, that, that you've reflected on when you think about okay, 20 years of working with this population, you've, uh, been the beneficiary of a lot of these amazing stories as you've been talking about um, and seeing people's lives being transformed through the five wishes and through going through that process. And, you know, the, the qualitative research in me says, okay, well, what's the, what's the groupings, you know, what, what are the, what are the, 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 the pieces that we can kind of look at and say, what are the themes that kind of emerge when, when you do this type of work for a long time? And uh, you graciously, I asked you that and you graciously put together a, a little list of some things um, so let's just kind of take our time as we kind of walk through the, the five points here that, that you found these, these, these themes that, that continually emerge um, in, in the lives of the elderly. And hopefully for us that, that are, are not on death's door that we can kind of learn and listen to, to, to these experiences. So uh, the, the first thing you said was people, you know, that was, the, that was top of the list. Why? Why? Yeah, and thinking back to your qualitative research mind too, <laughs> uh, there there is research on this. People have been asked if if you were near the end of life, what what would be most important to you? And almost at the top of all those lists is always my family, the people who I love, and and even more than that, not just having the people at the top of their mind, but having at the top of their mind the desire to make sure that the people who they love know that they love them, you know, whether it's thinking of your kids, thinking of your parents, that's almost universally something that we, our mind almost goes to is making sure that my kids, my parents, that they know that I love them. And, um, and also a desire to be with people and to have people with, with you. Uh, oftentimes one of the greatest fears that people have is a fear of walking these last miles of the marathon alone hmm. without somebody by their side. And, uh, and so that's also an expression that we hear that points to people and relationships is simply a desire to have loved ones close, to have them nearby. That doesn't mean at the bedside all the time, every day, every night, but it means not walking alone and being accompanied. Um, but in that grand scale, I, I do think that our, our minds, when we're thinking about what is most important to us in the big picture and in the big race, it does often point us back to the relationships, the people who we love, and at the same time, relationships where there may be brokenness. Mm -hmm. uh, we've heard of plenty of examples of people filling out five wishes 
sitting with a family and talking to one another and, um, and expressing both love and forgiveness to one another. Say, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't want to, uh, to get to the end of this finish line without letting you know that that thing that you did 10 years ago that caused us not to speak for years, uh, that you're forgiven for that. And, uh, and, and it causes that sometimes instigates that to happen. Uh, but definitely people, relationships, expressions of love and forgiveness, it rises to the top. Yeah. uh, What I was thinking about when, when I read this was there's studies that show with marital satisfaction, they bat marital satisfaction over the course of a lifespan and, and they'll say it's really high at the very beginning, but then once you have kids, marital satisfaction will, will dip a little bit. But then it kind of restabilizes and it kind of goes goes back up. But that initial dip sometimes will be misconstrued and will be used almost as a deterrent uh, for having ch- children. Uh, in essence, that if if you don't want your marital satisfaction to be uh, uh, messed with or uh, impacted in some negative way, then, then don't have kids. Is kind of a misconstruing of that data. But but that's what researchers will, will toss out sometimes is um is is that, and and I think that that's a uh, it, well, one that's in, it's inappropriate, of course, because it's 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 a too um, too myopic of a vision. You know, if you look at the graph and you're only saying that that little dip right there is 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 the problem area, um, because what it also does is it doesn't take into account w- what you're saying, which is that the, the time to ask the value of your kid's life isn't at three o'clock in the morning when you're changing a six months old diaper. <laughs> like like that's not the time that you're going to say how meaningful is this experience right now. Like probably not super meaningful, you know, because you're exhausted, especially if it's baby number three, baby number three was the, was, was just tough. I love my kids, but man, that was, that was the transition for me. That was hardest, but nevertheless, I understand. <laughs> you got five. So, you know, so I hear you. you have Plus six. one. I have six. You have six. That's right. Six. <laughs> that's yeah, extra diapers, that's man. <laughs> that is a lot of diapers. And but so, you know, so, and, and that, that makes me think of, uh, of an example that I would point to uh, that, well, that let me I just say this real from, quick and then and I'll yeah. get your example here, which is just, the point is exactly that, which is just to say that if you're only looking at that moment, then, then, then you've, you've, you, you've, you've missed the boat that the mm-hmm. time to ask what the value of a child's life is, is at the end of your life. And uh, now that you've seen the totality of this person's experience up to that point, obviously, and the, the meaning that they've brought to you as a parent, that's when you're going to understand why you had that, <laughs> you know, that's why you're going to understand uh, what, what the purpose is uh, into this whole enterprise. And so again, maintaining that, that full perspective, but, uh, but what was the, what was the story you're going to share? The beauty of a life that unpacks what you were just saying to, uh, to the next level, pointing back to grandparents and their grandkids. Uh, one of the examples that I think of, of how I learned from somebody who I wasn't related to and met just once for a very brief time, uh, an elderly woman who lived in Chicago, just outside of Chicago. She was very sick. She was receiving hospice care. And the question was asked of her, of what would make a good day for you? What, What does a good day look like? And this was a woman who couldn't get out of bed. Uh, She was approaching the end of her life. She had a hard time speaking. She couldn't go to the bathroom by herself. A lot of the things that um, probably caused her a lot of anxiety, despair. What It wasn't the way that she was wanting to live in that moment. She was relaying that too. But when she was asked, what would make a good day? She said, 
if I could hug my grandkids and smell their hair. Hmm. And that's a very tactile expression, right? The hugging I, I've heard before. The, but, but her definition of a good day was to be able to hold one of her small grandkids. And, and in her definition, it was to smell their hair, hmm. which was one of the senses that she still had full capacity. And I, I can't tell you how many times I've put my young kids to bed at night since I met that woman. And I've cuddled with them and hugged them and smelled their hair mm. and thought of that, 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 you know, for this woman who I crossed paths with in Chicago, one of the most important things to her in life was this moment that I was maybe hurrying through at the end of the day to get my kids to bed and put them to sleep and give them a hug. But at the end of the day and at the end of the race, this grand marathon that was one of the, the things that carried the most value, weight, worth, importance was an embrace and smelling a grandkid's hair. So I mean, just from that tactile side, that's very real and it's very simple. And that's not something that families, that any of us need any great training to be able to do or education to be able to do. It's just... It, it's it's humanity. It's us loving one another and appreciating what's in front of us or in our arms. I feel like I need to go to confession or something. I mean, like you just <laughs> feel so guilty right now. Like, <laughs> no, just hug your kids tonight. Just hugging my kids and, and smelling them. That, it. Yeah, and that that being that being enough uh, for for a day, um, that being the definition of 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 what I would consider a good day. Um, I mean, man, yeah, I have to confess that I, I, I don't know if I would have put that alone on my, on my schedule, you know, on my, on my little box there. And, yeah. and so to be, uh, to be shot in the eyes right now, smacked in the face right now is, is a, is a bit of humility to be reminded that, that for sure. I mean, at the end of the day, and I, and I preach it, of course, you know, that, that my kids are my greatest value They're they're And so to be able to, to hold on to those moments as much as possible, um, and to, to embrace that and to smell, you know, I, lo I love that you talked about the tactileness, the smell, smell is, is, is a profound um, memory connector, you know, like, like we, we can walk into a room and we can smell something and it'll immediately remind us of whatever there's like somebody's perfume or something, you know, like immediately remind you of a friend or, or some coworker, maybe that put it on a little too strongly or whatever, but like your smell, smell will immediately bring you back to, to a, to a place a lot faster than, than, than visually and even physical. Um, and so even smell smells even hard. So it's harder to trick in terms of when you have a, when people have hallucinations, they can have video, visual or auditory hallucinations, but to have olfactory hallucinations is, 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 is quite rare um, because, uh, because it's, because it's so connected into the brain, uh, into the, the systems there. So for her to say that specifically, I mean, it just speaks to the, um, the visceral reaction, you know, that the smell of her, of her grandkids provides, um, so really that's, that, is, uh, that is quite remarkable. Hey everybody, this is Dr. Mario Sacas and I'm taking a quick break from my conversation with Paul Malley to encourage you to check us out at faithandmarriage.org. If you have been enjoying this conversation that we've been having, then I honestly wanna invite you to check out 
some blog posts that I wrote last year about my experience running a marathon. I wrote five posts that got lost because it was right at the beginning of COVID. But if you have been enjoying these reflections about life and mortality, I really get deep into that during these posts because during my marathon, honestly, it was what I was thinking about. So please check those posts out. I have a link for those in the show notes, but you can check those out at faithandmarriage.org as well as other blogs or past episodes of the Always So podcast or Jason's Angelette, great content that he has. All of that available for you at faithandmarriage.org. Um, so, okay, well, let's, let's keep moving and see what other gems you got for us, Paul. All right. So, so the second one then, uh, that, that, that you shared. Yeah. I think in addition to people are, our thoughts also turn to faith and spirituality. Uh, and we hear this from people who would say that they have lived their life with a focus on their faith, their religious tradition, their spirituality, and others who may say that all through their life, all through the miles of their marathon, faith hasn't maybe been front and center, but now it is mm-hmm. as they approach the end and as they have time to think more about it. Um, so we do see that as being consistent. So in other words, it's, this isn't just for people who have, who have said that faith is a priority, number one priority all through the decades of their life, um, but really consistently across the board. So it's a desire, just like there's a desire to be close to and to express love and to receive love from the people who are close to us. I think there's also that same desire uh, to have that connection, that relationship with our creator, our maker, our God. That points us to our faith, uh, especially to our faith traditions. Uh, And, 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 and it also points us to a broader spirituality that has us thinking about even beyond the end, this end of earthly life of what happens next. Uh, but we do see a, a really large focus of a desire to talk about faith uh, or question it as well. In the same way that our thoughts often turn to our relationships of the people who are close to us, those relationships that are great and those that are broken, the same happens when we think about faith too. Uh, that could be a strong desire or a magnet that pulls us deeper in our relationship with our God. Uh, and it could also stir up some feelings of uncertainty and uneasiness. Uh, but nonetheless, it's there. It's front and center. It comes front and center on the radar, the issues of faith and spirituality, and also the tactile expressions of those too, whether it's prayer, uh, traditions, Uh, I'll tell you that my own experience just earlier this year, uh, my mom had my my, my mom had COVID Mm -hmm. and we were preparing for her to go to the hospital. And we knew that that was going to be a difficult experience for her and for us. And I remember standing in her bedroom with her, packing the one small bag that we were going to be able to send into the hospital with her. And I remember thinking, what should I put in this bag? Like this is, I, I, I may need to tell a nurse or somebody that they can grab something in this bag that would bring comfort to my mom. And uh, so I looked around her room and I grabbed her rosary beads and I stuffed her rosary beads in the side pocket 
And I remembered which one because I knew I might need to tell somebody over the phone where to get it. And, and then I kept looking around the house and I thought, where does my dad keep the holy water? And I stuffed the holy water in the bottom of the, uh, the bag. And this is the same holy water bottle that my dad used to use to give us blessings on the forehead when we had something big happening or mm-hmm. bad or whatever. Uh, but I tucked that in the little small bag that I sent with my mom to the hospital. Uh, and it had that and, uh, and a copy of her five wishes and a change of clothes. And, and, and that was it. That, that was what I sent my mom off with, not knowing what was going to happen to her. Mm. Uh, but I wanted to make sure that she had her rosary and her holy water because I knew that that would bring her comfort, consolation, and, uh, and some peace and some grace in a real and a tactile way that would make a difference for her. It's beautiful. And so obviously in this experience, your mom's Catholic, and this has been meaningful to, to your life in the particular traditions of the, of the faith of the church. But, but you did say that there are individuals who um, don't have any tradition or, or faith background specifically, but that this conversation still comes up even in the end. How do you guys navigate those conversations um, with people who, who aren't coming from a, from a Catholic background or a Christian background? A great question. And um, so in Five Wishes, we ask some simple questions like, uh, do I want people praying for me or praying with me? Would I like to be visited by a chaplain if I'm in the hospital? Chaplains who work in health systems are just wonderful at this. They're trained in it. They can walk into a room and not know what kind of situation they're walking into, but, uh, but almost always be able to open a door and meet a person where they are spiritually mm-hmm. by asking some open-ended questions uh, about what's on, what's on their mind, what are their fears, what are their hopes. And oftentimes that points to people and to God, to the yeah. people around them and, and to God. Uh, Five Wishes certainly is w- written in a way that, uh, although it was inspired directly by the work of Mother Teresa of Calcutta, uh, it was r- it written in a way to be used by people of all faiths. It's written in 29 different languages. Um, I think immediately of a, a group in outside of Boston called the Indian Circle for Caring. And they use five wishes with all of their, uh, their Indian community that are speaking Hindi and Gujarati and Bengali and other languages. And, uh, and I remember their director there telling me that one of the, one of the significant expressions of uh, accompaniment and respect and dignity that a person can give when visiting someone is when, if they walk in the door, if they take their shoes off at the front door, there's a sign of great respect um, that a person who is receiving them uh, would, would receive with more open arms. And little things like that, whether they're, they have a connection to culture or spirituality, they're often forgotten. And when he was explaining this to me, he was saying that as he was describing his community, he said, sometimes our younger generation doesn't know to do this. Hmm. And if, they're, if, if they know about it, then they're happy to do it because they want to show that sign of respect to their grandparents, but they might just not know. So part of telling this story and saying what's important especially when it comes to faith and spirituality and cultural traditions is just to, to, um, to paint that picture and say, here are the things that are important to me. Uh, that comes up even when thinking about memorial services and funeral services, 
when younger generations may want to honor their parents or grandparents, but they, uh, they, they don't know what the expectations are. Mm-hmm. Even in, even this comes up in churches and places of worship mm-hmm. where, uh, where say the, the young child, the children of an aging parent or grandparent are tasked with planning a funeral mass or a memorial service. And they're unfamiliar with the traditions and they just don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. So that raises the importance of talking about this together as a family ahead of time. Um, because usually the desire is to make sure that we're being as say as a family, being respectful, honoring the, the request and the hopes of, um, of our loved one. But a lot of times we just don't know what that is. So five wishes aims at filling in the blanks. That's beautiful. And one of the great tragedies, of course, of this rise in secularism in, in our culture is that we're, we've, we're losing this connection to the traditions that have um, shaped us and formed us. And, uh, and like you said, sometimes young people, it's not even that they're hostile towards the faith necessarily. They just have grown up in a culture that is disconnected from that tradition. And so they themselves would desire to, to manifest appropriate signs of respect uh, to the elderly or to their grandparents, but just don't know how to do it, uh, whether that's in the situation you're talking about with the, with the Indian group or in a Catholic context, that they want to be able to, to honor and to respect and to show those, those things, but don't know how to do it because they've grown up in, a, in, an, in, in an environment where um, those things don't have a high value anymore. And so what you're saying here is that even in the five wishes that whether or not they're high value throughout your life, that almost always at the end of the life, you see that that becomes a value. Um, it becomes something of, of, of importance of knowing how to hold on to whatever that tradition is, whatever it is that, that faith that, that will anchor you in those moments. Um, and so encouragement, you know, to, to, if we're going to get right with people earlier in life, and if we're going to be encouraged to, to make forgiveness uh, a high value, then as we're listening to this, again, equally making faith a high value in, in pursuit of God and pursuit of the religious things as something that will, um, if we've set it up right, again, back to the investment piece, if we've, if we've set it up right, that it will, the, the dividends will be yielded, the return will be, will, will, will be high uh, uh, at the end of it all. Um, and so I think that that's absolutely beautiful and spectacular. Thank you for all these beautiful stories that, that you've been sharing. So the third part here, all right, what's, what's the next point? So elimination of the unnecessary is what okay. I categorized it as. Love it. Um, the, the, the fading away of the unnecessary. And, and I don't say unimportant, but I'd say unnecessary. Uh, <laughs> What's the difference? We, what do you mean? Well, <laughs> well, sometimes the things that we think are, uh, are important aren't necessary. <laughs> what are you so, talking about? I mean, like, you know, my, my YouTube feed is very important. I have to you keep gotta up have with, it, right? I got I to keep up with the news <laughs> of the day. You know, that's very important for me. <laughs> That is sarcasm, that sarcasm, is. sarcasm, tripping. tripping. <laughs> well, you know, think about, think about the road we've all walked through pandemic life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we've Great all point. had the experience of having things taken away. I mean, at minimum, our, our calendars got a lot thinner. Yes, they did. And I know at least in our family with, with six young kids, uh, the calendar was a lot, had a lot fewer things on it. Yes. And a lot of those things we thought were very important and they, and they are mm-hmm. piano lessons for kids and yes. school activities and those sorts of things. They weren't really necessary. Uh, and 
when they were cleared from the deck, we had some time for other things like mm. more family meals together uh, and game nights together. And, uh, and I don't mean to paint the picture that everything was roses and, and perfect, but, um, but it was different because, because some of those unimportant things were not on the radar anymore. Right. And we hear the same thing from people who are walking roads of illness or disability, um, where maybe even for a younger person who's living with a serious illness and they're not able to work. I mean, that's for a younger person. That is, that's, that's important to be able to provide for their family, uh, and, uh, and, and their activity during the day. And if they're in a place where they're in bed, I think of even somebody who I know very well was in a hospital for 24 hours with mm -hmm. a, you know, a fairly minor issue. But everything else was put to the side. They're sitting in a bed. You're looking at a ceiling in a hospital room. That's a different lens to look yeah. through life at. Uh, so, so that's why I say elimination of the unnecessary. It it reframes our perspective, and it allows us. It gives us the space to focus more on the things that are truly important. And it does make me think back to the woman in Chicago who's who's radar had been cleared of almost everything else in life. And the one thing that she was focused on was being able to hold a grandchild. Uh, and that was possible because that became the most significant, the most important thing in the world to her. And I, you know, I'm, I, I'm not saying at all that the, the activities of life, uh, the, especially, you know, in young families, my kids are back to taking piano lessons and that's yeah, great. And yeah. I love it. Uh, but it does give us a different vantage point when those things are cleared away that we see sometimes a little bit more clearly the things that are really important. Amen. I, well, we had the same experience obviously with COVID and, and thinking about the, the calendars being cleared and just having more time together, which was really beautiful. Now that the schedules are, are getting picking back up, as yours are as well. Uh, we're feeling that the, the pinch again of, of baseball games and practices and different things and, and, uh, and struggling to have family meals and those things again. So, so we're starting to feel it again, um, like it was pre COVID, but, but something that I, I think what I was thinking about when, when, when I saw this in, in your notes, as we were kind of preparing for this interview, I, I went in a different direction, which is that that thought of, of laying on a hospital bed and uh, staring at the ceiling, like you just said, what a what a what an image to have. I mean, it's it. You know, how do you how do you prepare for that? I guess is kind of the question. You know, again, thinking about the the focus of the show is kind of how do we retro engineer? You know, kind of a life that allows us to be ready. You know, for for the time that the Lord calls us home, and uh, and I think that's a that's a significant piece that that um, there's a certain tolerance that you have to have for quiet a certain tolerance that you have to have, a certain disposition, I would say, that you have to have for, for stillness to be able to tolerate a, a situation or an experience like that. Where if you can't be on YouTube, as I was joking about a few minutes ago, or you can't be listening to a podcast, or you can't be um, uh, playing a game or checking your email or, or watching movies or any of the other bazillion things that we do on the phone, that that capacity to be to to just stop and have some stillness is something that is, I mean, 
you talk about a skill set that's completely lost among our young people, but that's it right there. You know, we have no idea how to just be present and quiet. Uh, we don't know how to, how to even stand in line without scrolling, uh, use the bathroom without scrolling. I mean, like do, do anything that would just have required a few moments of quiet. We have, we have no capacity for that anymore. And that virtue is not instilled in, in any way. And, and I wonder, I mean, I mean, I'm just, I mean, I'm like thinking like, well, what, like, what are the ramifications of that? And again, not trying to be too morbid or thinking about like my mortality um, too, too much, but, but thinking about, okay, well, well, how there, there comes these moments, sure, where you're just going to have to be quiet and you're going to have to be still and you're going to have to stare at the wall or whatever. And so how do you, how do you encourage that? You know, how do you, how do you set up where, where you do have some quiet in your life where you make some intentional movement away from the phone? Um, and it's not even that the phone is, is not even, I'm not even talking about pornography or anything inherently sinful. I'm just talking about the, the draw to the phone as, as, a, as an impulse in and of itself. How do we make certain movements away from that? That's what I see when I when I when I when I when I when I read this about elimination of the unnecessary. You think about the hours and hours and hours we've spent scrolling on social media. Man, if you could eliminate all of that, how much of your life would you have back? When 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 you when you get to the end, as we've been talking about, and you start assessing how you've allocated this time that you've had. And if you think about so much of it being spent on on meaningless things, on frivolous things. Well, man, there's a certain element of of, uh, of guilt that can that can emerge in that, um, and so I don't know what 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 are the stories or what's coming to your mind as as, as I'm kind of sharing this. I, I think you're exactly on the right track, and it it makes me think of uh, of the importance of living a life that cultivates the ability to sit in stillness and in quiet, because uh, certainly for some people, as they as they approach this moment, say, say, thinking of the younger person who might be in their 30s, who has a, a health crisis that comes up or just is in a hospital for testing, mm-hmm. hopefully something minor, that, that can hit with a thud if that person's life hasn't been lived in a way that has cultivated the space for that stillness and that quiet and to be okay with mm-hmm. that. And in the same way... Uh, if it has never dawned on us to think about or consider our own mortality, that very idea that something could happen to us and our physical bodies could die could be so threatening and dashing that, that even the possibility of an illness could just hit with such a thud in a way that a person who's lived their life in a way that's cultivated that space for quiet, for discernment, for prayer, uh, and and also lived with not a morbid awareness of mortality, but just an awareness of the fact that uh, that we are living a life that will one day end, and we want it to end in the best way possible, and living the best life that we can in the meantime. Uh, so how you, that's I think that points us back to how you live your life each day will affect how you can live your life if something goes different than what you expect, if it's an illness or a disability, or if you are the caregiver, be a 20-year-old caregiver or an 80-year-old caregiver from somebody who you love, how you can be there with them too. So I got COVID um, back in December and uh, I didn't go to the hospital, but but day seven, I was 
I was in bad shape. And, and I woke up that morning with my heart just pounding through my chest. I didn't sleep at all. I couldn't, re- I couldn't rest it. It was more than just anxiety. It was, it was, it was something I checked my, my oxygen levels. They were fine. My blood pressure was high, but I, I thought for sure. I was like, this is the day, this is the day that I go to the hospital. And so I, I contacted my doctor. I got some medicine, got that stabilized, but then I, it, but then I entered into, um, you know, this long COVID uh, that, that people have been reporting. I'm, I'm one of those folks, you know, who had this experience that lingered for, for weeks and months on end where um, it took me, I would say six weeks before I even felt like the brain fog fully lift. I mean, the, that first month after the, that my initial diagnosis of COVID, I was having light sensitivity, um, extreme fatigue. I mean, I like talked about running a marathon, you know, even now, uh, I, six months post-diagnosis, I haven't, the most I've been able to run has been five miles, um, which, which for most people I get for, for, uh, for lots of folks who are like, oh, five miles, what are you complaining about? You know, that's still a good, that's a good run. But for a guy who just ran 26 a year ago, you know I mean? Like that feels like nothing. And I, and I remember when five miles felt like, oh, I'm just warming up, you know? And, uh, and so now it's like, it's, it's, it's still there. You know, I'm, I'm getting, I'm getting my, uh, my stamina back. Um, and so for me, this question has been, has been something that I've had to reflect on, you know, particularly when I was just on my, on the, on, where I couldn't do much other than just be on the lazy boy, anything else would, 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 would require more, more effort than I, than I was capable of, of, of putting out. Um, man, it was tough. It was, there's no doubt, there's no doubt about it. You know, somebody I've dedicated my life to my faith. I've dedicated my life to the church and I believe in the things that, that we profess, but yeah, I mean, I, I'll, I'll, I'll say publicly for sure that, that, uh, that even in those moments, you know, it was tough. And, and so that's where you believe and you hope that, that the character that you've shaped your life to be or, or, or who you've shaped your life, who you shaped yourself to be, hopefully in the character, that those things sustain you through those moments, um, that they become an anchor. You know, that's why, that's why the, the Christian tradition of, of hope is, is an anchor. And that's why we use that image for, for the podcast as well. But you, I mean, you want this, you want an anchor, not to be something wimpy, you know, like you want a, like a strong anchor that like you throw this thing out in the water. I mean, you want to make sure that, that it hits the ground and it's going to keep this boat stabilized. I mean, like that anchor is something that, that you genuinely want to be substantial. And, uh, and, and I can say certainly that, it, that our faith provides that um, if, if it is real, if we've, if we've, if we've formed it in a way that is uh, substantial and that is meaningful and, and not just something, um, that is superficial or, or naive. And, uh, um, and it was tough. It was tough for sure. But, um, but praise God, you know, we've gotten through it. I've gotten both my COVID shots and I can say that I think that they've helped. There's been some anecdotes that, that the COVID shots have helped people with some of this long COVID stuff. And so far so good on my end, I'm, I'm two weeks post the second shot now, and I'm starting to feel a little bit better. Um, so the, 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 the proof is in the pudding, as they say, I'll, I'll start exercising and increasing my mileage and see if that helps. Um, but, uh, but it is remarkable, you know, to go through an experience like that. I've, I've never in one year, I went from being the fittest that I've ever been to, to the, to the, the unhealthiest I've ever been, you know, in a span of eight months, basically. Um, and it was, uh, it was, it was certainly a, a whiplash type of experience for me. Um, that I'm still obviously processing as, as the listener can, can hear. <laughs> sure. So. Yeah. Wow. That's quite, that is quite a road that you are, have just walked and are walking. Yeah. Yeah. We're, and you're we're, making we're, it. We're making it. We're getting through it. <laughs> you're making it. So let's keep rolling. All right. So the, the fourth point here. 
Yeah, so fourth one is uh, is one that actually the that third one of eliminating the unnecessary points us to, mm-hmm. and it's a it's it's our deep question of meaning and purpose. Yeah, uh, we hear oftentimes as people are filling out five wishes or as they're uh, as they're living with illness or disability that they start wondering or continue to wonder and question, uh, you know, what, what life was all about, right. what were they meant to do? Did they do it? Did they accomplish what they wanted to? Are there regrets that might still be there? Um, and some of those may be about actions, uh, things that somebody wants to do or making amends, things like that. Um, but oftentimes it's also even just deeper about, was I the person who I was meant to be? or who I wanted to be, who I was made to be. Uh, these are big, big questions, right? And, and especially if somebody is in a place where they're, they're living with a serious illness, they have more time that they might be alone, where the, the distractions are eliminated, they can chew on these things a lot, uh, ruminate on them. And it can be a time of great growth. It can also be a time of great despair, too. Because questions do come up about regrets and how do I, are there things that I wish that I did differently? Uh, Are there circumstances that I wish were different today? All of those are natural and I think are very common in in any life. Where hope gets injected is, uh, is where some of those things can be reframed. Thinking back to the woman in Chicago thinking about, you know, what does a good day look like for you today? That was despite all the physical disabilities that she had that were different than what she wanted. Uh, But it pointed to the question of what brings you hope today? What makes a good day today? And for many people, when they're wondering about, maybe they're looking in the rearview mirror at the life that they had lived and wondering about meaning and purpose, then they also start to look at the life in the moment. What's my purpose today? And oftentimes that purpose is in how they live, they live their life or their journey or their struggle or live through their pain as well. We've heard so many family members, especially young people say, you know, the way that I saw my, say a parent or grandparent age or process um, dementia or disability, it showed me that they really believed what they told me they believed. Wow. And, uh, and that they were the person that they wanted to be. Um, that, that even so, in dementia, their, their, their goodness shines, you know, that even, right. in, even in that, that the quality of who they are as a person is, is still there. That, that, that's kind of what you're saying. Yes. And, and, and also the idea that how you live this day matters to the people around you. Hmm. Because oftentimes that question of purpose, like what's, what's the point of this? Why? Why am I? Why am I still here? If it's somebody who's lived with a serious illness for maybe decades, sometimes that question is asked: Why? Why am I here? I can't. I, maybe I can't contribute what I want to contribute. I can't do or accomplish what I want to do or accomplish. And is there purpose? Well, that's an important question to ask, because I think if we ask that question and we look at it, there is always purpose. It might be very different from what we would first imagine, but there is there is always purpose and meaning to be drawn from the beauty of a life, even when it's 
lived out in circumstances that are different than how we would have designed. Yeah, th- that that sense of like meaning and purpose. I mean, in terms of the research with hope, that's what we've learned that it um, it certainly is this notion that meaning and hope go hand in hand. And so like when we're able to have a narrative uh, that gives us uh, some understanding of why we're going through what we're going through, that gives us the anchor that we've been speaking about that allows us to encounter these things. And so thinking then again about like, um, at, okay, so at the end of the life, uh, meaning and purpose uh, emerges and asking these deep questions, these deep existential questions of, did I do what I was supposed to do? Um, have I done the, the best that I can do? I mean, I'm thinking of a couple of things right now. Of course, uh, the, the great scene in Schindler's List at the very end of the movie where he's just trying to, you know, he's just asking, has he done enough? And, and uh, did he give enough to, 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 uh, to his workers uh, in terms of saving enough of them from the Nazi regime? But, but also, but I guess bringing that down in just a little bit, when it comes back to like the sermon, okay, so thinking about the young person who's listening to this and what does this mean for me? Well, one of the things that I've read with regard to some of this research about regret is that at the end of life, and tell me if this is right or wrong or what your, what your experience is with this, that regret, certainly people have regrets about things that they uh, did do and maybe some of the, the wrongs that they committed that they need to be, they need to be righted. Um, or that they've tried to make amends in certain situations. But what I've heard at least is, is that the regrets that, that tend to linger harder or deeper aren't so much the sins of commission, it's rather the sins of omission. It's the things that they didn't do when they had the opportunity to do them, that those missed opportunity, those failed um, engagements, those uh, uh those tend to be the things that that one regrets more or that weighs a little bit heavier in the conscience. And so when you when you think about that in terms of a question of discernment, okay, so I'm a I'm a 25-year-old and 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 I have a couple opportunities. Sometimes the question, sometimes it's not a bad question to ask. If you look at two opportunities that are before you, which one do you think you're going to regret more in the long run that you didn't actually go try and 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 and, and seek? Even if it falls apart, you know, I've had many, I've had many projects in my life blow up in my face. Okay. So, so I've been many endeavors that haven't worked out exactly the way that I thought they were, but I don't regret trying. I don't regret that I've committed myself to them. Even if, even if they didn't pan out, I didn't regret taking that risk. Um, and so I think sometimes that's a, that's a question that, that we can ask ourselves um, if we're, if we're in the midst of a discernment is if I don't say yes to this, uh, how much am I really going to regret this on uh, five, 10, 15, 20 years from now um, is, is, a, is an interesting question to throw into the, uh, the, the sermon mix. Yeah. Uh, a ton of wisdom in that. Absolutely. <laughs> and, uh, and I think you're right. Oftentimes when, when we're, we hear, we see the examples of people looking in that rearview mirror of life and thinking about the life that they've lived. It is often those things that they wish they did more of. Hmm. Um, and it's usually not work longer or yeah, spend yeah, more yeah. time surfing YouTube right. or any of those things. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I have this, this song in the back of my head. I don't know if any of your listeners are uh, Broadway fans, but there's a newer show that uh, was, came out a couple of years ago, The Great Comet. And Josh Groban sings this song in it called Dust and Ashes. And he's he's middle-aged guy as he's singing this song. And he's asking himself the question, have I lived enough? Have I laughed enough? And then this, this crescendo comes when he asks the question, have I loved enough? Yeah. And, and then that becomes the, his focus. 
And, and in this case, in this story, it pivots and it changes the way he lives his life and the rest of the story. But, uh, you know, I, I know you're a fan of movies and art and literature. Are you going to sing for us, Paul? Are you gonna, are you I'm gonna not going to sing for you. You're not going to sing for us? You're not going to sing the lines art. for us? <laughs> uh, no, no, no. You can look it up on YouTube since you You'll like to go on YouTube. probably get sued for copyright infringement anyway, so it's probably better. It's on YouTube. You can find it. <laughs> but, you know, in, in these great stories and great art, it's often focused on search for meaning. Man's search for meaning, right? Yes. Yeah, and and, uh, and unpacking cool. that. And, and our lives are the perfect example. Uh, it's the greatest art literature story that we are writing every day as we live and speak and how we live it matters. Yeah. So I, I'm thinking also now about Erickson's stages of development. And that last stage is, uh, is the, the central tension of the final stage is integrity versus despair. And, and thinking about that, you know, that if you've lived your life, again, not hard and fast, but with great integrity, then you can look back on your life with a certain peace to say, I, I've done the best that I can with what was given to me and, and having a certain acceptance of that versus a despair, which then can, can creep into the final stages um, which is uh, the opposite of that, of course, in terms of like an awareness that, wow, I really have engaged in many frivolous or meaningless activities and, and I haven't committed my time um, as, uh, um, as, as purposefully as, as, I, as I would have wanted. Um, and so these are, again, all, all things that, that we should be kind of paying attention to and aware of. So then this goes right into the final point then of existential awareness. Um, what, what, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, so the, the fifth one I labeled existential awareness because it was uh, it was the being mindful of and maybe questioning or wondering about what happens what happens next. <laughs> you know, I think oftentimes when people are living with illness or they're caring for somebody who's very sick or living with a disability, there's a practical focus on the here and now and the physical challenges and uh, and responding to that. Then there comes this time where we think about well, what if I am nearing the end of life, where, where does all this lead? And for some people that leads, leads to great consolation built on their faith and their beliefs and their, their desire. And sometimes this great joyfulness of going home to God, being welcomed into eternal life. Uh, for others, it raises uncertainty or unease. Uh, for some, it raises great despair because they either just really don't know what happens next or they're wondering about it. Um, in any case, whatever those, whatever their current disposition is, that existential awareness and either great hope and joy or dread uh, are certainly front and center on the radar. Are there any qualities that you find with individuals or in the, in the stories that you've heard about people who, who do face those final moments with uh, despair versus those who do face it with a sense of peace and integrity? So I think, it, I, I think of, um, especially what we've heard from nurses, hospice nurses, people who have been at the bedsides of a, a lot of people who have approached the end of their life. Uh, and it's impossible to completely generalize. Sure. Uh, sure. But oftentimes if, if there is a struggle, a sense of despair, there is, there's, there's something unresolved hmm. and that it could be connected to a relationship and that could be with a person that could be an unresolved uh, 
break in the, in the person's faith, their relationship with their creator, with their God. Uh, then, then the question comes to, well, how, how do we, and is there, it, is this the time to be able to um, uncover that? And, and that's where chaplains come in, nurses, uh, priests, rabbis, ministers, and why it's so important that faith uh, isn't kept from the bedside of people who are seriously ill. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that can be one of the challenges of over-medicalizing the end of life. Uh, if people aren't able to communicate or they're, uh, you know, not able to have access to their family or, or, uh, or their priest or their minister or their chaplain, that's why it's so important. Not always, not always possible to, uh, to heal or fix every circumstance, but certainly important to give the person the opportunity to say, here's, here's what's unresolved. Uh, and, and in some cases, there's resolution. In some cases, there's not. Uh, but I think in all cases, it points to no matter what's happened in the past, there is a reality of how we live our life today uh, that does give us a source of hope, no matter what the past has ha, has included it. That's why we have a project called Hope Today, <laughs> and the meaning and and the intention of the name of that project, Hope Today, where we have volunteers or our our program director going to visit somebody who is isolated, is that we may not be able to fix every physical challenge that they have or every every challenge that they have. But we can, in the way that we interact, that we accompany the person, that we sit with them, we can do that in a way that causes them to experience hope today, in that moment, in that very moment. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, hey, listen, you're, you're preaching to the hope guy, so I, I get it. You know, <laughs> there's a reason why I called the podcast "Always Hope." It's it's for the 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 same the same reason that it's an acknowledgement then that. Uh, as I've said a thousand times, hope is a choice. It, 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 you have options. You can, you can choose cynicism. That's a, that's a, a very viable option in life. You can choose despondency, very viable option. Um, I just think choosing hope is the better option and, uh, and the research supports it also. And so hope is a choice. And when we think of hope as a choice, it's, it's rather empowering in that regard because then, then we reclaim it as something virtuous, which is what it is. It's not something passive. It's not just something that happens to us, that hope is something that we go seek and that we go engage with. Um, and so therefore, it is something that we can cultivate. It's a virtue that we can cultivate, a habit. We talk about habits. It, that's what a virtue is. Uh, it's a firm disposition towards the good. Um, it's an inculcated habit that that's deep within us. And so to, to, to pursue that virtue, um, in those final moments is nothing short of heroic. Um, it's nothing short of heroic than to say that even in these final moments, I'm choosing, I'm choosing hope and, uh, and I'm choosing to still be the best version of myself. Um, even, even as, as I am experiencing the, the, the end of the, the end of my life. So man. And that, um, and that, and that for many people, that heroic way of living that path in that moment, that becomes their purpose. Yes. Because their purpose there is is the legacy leaving that they are leaving behind for their grandkids and their kids who are watching them live their life in that moment in the way that they are with hope and and with purpose and that becomes the source then uh, of their hope and purpose. 
Amen. Wow. Well, I have some praying to do after this interview, some things I need to go reflect on and, and, and make sure that my life is, is as, uh, uh, my, my, that my time spent, you know, you think about like, you, you can, you can learn a lot about somebody's value set by looking at their monthly expenses. You can also similarly also when it comes to your schedule, where, where you invest your time is, is where your heart is, you know, where you, where your treasure is there, 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 your heart will be uh, same thing, you know? And so, so this has been a, a wonderful episode to, to, to be rethinking about some of these things that, um, that, yeah, it's just good to, from time to time to reassess kind of what we're doing and uh, where we're putting our time and our efforts. So Paul, it's been a, a great pleasure having you on the show. So if people have any questions or follow up or they, they like what they've, they've heard from you, and they want to learn more about five wishes or aging with dignity as a whole, uh, where would you recommend folks to go? Sure. Uh, I'd go to our website. It's agingwithdignity.org and do two things. Uh, when you go to agingwithdignity.org, you can click on subscribe and uh, we'll keep you up to date with uh, some, some occasional updates, uh, including some links to videos that tease out some of these topics that we've just talked about, especially on um, search for meaning and purpose in life during times of serious illness. So subscribe to Aging with Dignity, agingwithdignity.org. And while you're on that site, also click on Five Wishes, or you can go to fivewishes.org and get copies of Five Wishes for you and your family. When, when you think about filling out Five Wishes, our, our encouragement, my encouragement to you is not to do it alone. So get a starter kit, sit down with parents, grandparents, and have a family discussion about it together. Uh, rather than putting one person in the hot seat or just doing it on your own, make it a family conversation together. Do those two things. Subscribe awesome. at Aging with Dignity and get your five wishes. Fantastic. Well, we will have a link to that website in the show notes. So, Paul, as you know, you're, you're a listener of the show, so you know what question's coming. You know, final question to ask all my first-time guests, what gives you hope? Man, I should have been expecting that, right? <laughs> You should have been expecting it. Yes, you should have. Been. I should have. Um, so, well, yeah, in the, in the large sense, my, my, my first thought goes to the cross and the resurrection, right? Uh, as the, the, the ultimate winning of hope over, over burden and struggle and challenge. Uh, but I'm, I'll bring it down to more of a tactile thing. And uh, more recently, it's, uh, it's my mom. And, you know, she, she thankfully, I'll, the end of the story of her COVID is that she came home from the hospital and she did not want to come home with home oxygen. That was something that she hoped would not happen, but she had to come back with, uh, with home oxygen. And just last week she said to me, she said, I feel like I'm being called to have hope. And she said, I think, I think I might be able to go two hours without the oxygen in my nose. And if I can do that, I might be able to go out to dinner somewhere. Hmm. And I thought, man, if my mom can reframe her expectation with something like this of, of how, how, much, how much home oxygen she needs so that if she's able to go out to dinner, that would be a great source of hope. Uh, her pursuit of that hope and her ability to find it, that gives me great hope. Uh, beautiful. Well, blessings to you, to your mother. Hope her recovery continues well and to your family. And Paul, man, just God bless you. Thanks so much for joining me on the show. It has been a delight and, uh, and a long time coming. So I'm excited to, to finally gotten you onto the podcast. And uh, God bless you, man, and all the good work that you're doing. Awesome. With you, Mario. Thanks. Got it. 
Okay, God bless you, my dear listener. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Man, you know, I don't know what to say. It just, we want to make sure that we have appropriate awareness. We don't want to be macabre or, or thinking oh, too much about our mortality, but certainly just having a healthy respect and awareness and recognition that our earthly journey will end at some point. And we hope that we are doing what we can to set ourselves up appropriately for that point of transition. And that hopefully when we meet our maker, um, that, that God will give us the grace that we need to bring us home safely. So many blessings to you. I pray that this episode has, has found you well and encouraged you. So God bless and be good. <laughs>